difficult passage of scripture and maybe it's coming at a kind of difficult time in the life of our country but uh, the two things may go together in fact and that's Romans chapter 13 let me read then uh, just uh, the first uh, eight verses every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing." For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Last week I began to introduce this passage by uh, making sure that we uh, uh, ground it in the context uh, of Romans 12. Um, In tracing, if we think back to the rise of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany, and the most radical evil to have ever visited our planet, perhaps. It's often pointed out that Hitler may have been made possible by uh, the theology and anti-Semitism of Martin Luther. Uh, Luther's notion of a private, otherworldly justification rendered nearly useless the idea in Christianity that we're to identify with the oppressed, with the poor, with the outcast. And the question is if we have now entered a time when Christians are not only rendered useless, but when it, that is when it comes to standing up for the poor, but maybe worse that Christians have become a force for oppression against the poor and outcast. So when Paul talks about being made righteous, this has to do with social relations. It has to do with actually carrying out uh, being you know made right in regard to one another the basic heresy that Paul exposed was the failure of Jewish Christians uh, to uh, recognize that the Messiah had also been open and come to the Gentiles so the heart of Paul's interest had to do with the social character of this new messianic community the church Paul argued in Galatians that Jews and Gentiles must be joined together in one fellowship. And so to be justified is to be set right uh, and for that new relationship. The term justification links with language in Ephesians of making peace, breaking down the dividing wall. Uh, As Christians, we do not identify ourselves on the basis of walls, on the basis of exclusion, on the basis of hatred, on the basis of who's on the outside. Paul's letter to the Romans emphasizes 
the social nature of justification. John Hout Yoder said, the issue of the polarity of Jew and Gentile is present at major turning points throughout the argument of the book. Paul cares not so much about systematic theological speculation about how humans are made acceptable to God, but rather the very concrete Roman situation in which Jew and Gentile, legalistic Christian and pagan Christian needed to accept one another. And so as I described this last week, as Paul builds upon Jesus' notion of love of enemies and nonviolent revolution through a revolutionary subordination, mutual subordination of husbands and wives, masters and slaves, parents and children, is meant to revolutionize these institutions, the institution of marriage, of social relations, of family structure. And so in the church, we have a very different kind of culture. And once we get that, then subordination to the state. The same state, remember, that crucified Jesus, and which would very soon behead Paul, was to recognize, to to be subordinate to it, was to recognize God's purpose would be realized through the church, and that the idolatry of the state was to be resisted. The church is made up of those conformed, remember 12, 1 to 2, to God's character and not content to go on allowing themselves to be continually stamped afresh with the spirit of the age, this age which Paul says is passing away. So we have to read 13 in the context of 12 uh, and get a picture then of Paul's overall worldview. The overall section we talked about is we're called to nonconformity. We're not to conform to the world, to the all-encompassing, you know, suffering love that is what we're to be guided by. Uh, love of enemies in 12:10 and love of everyone. So, an understanding of 13:1 to 7 that does not see it as part of being this overriding injunction of Paul which he makes for Christians in Rome to live lives in nonconformity to the old age and suffering love, it will violate the context of the passage. So 13.1-7 is not to be taken in isolation, uh, but this explains how these very members of the church are to subordinate themselves to the state a state that definitely does not manifest the lifestyle that Paul values in, uh, throughout 12. The key thing here may be that Paul says, uh, you know, that God orders the state. It does not say that God ordains the state. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Uh, and those which exist, which are ordered, which are established, not ordained. So the board subordination which is called for recognizes that whatever power exists, it uh, is the power that we have to deal with. Uh, the word is tasso, ordering. It means to appoint, to order, uh, with nuances such as to range, to determine, to set in place, to establish to fix. 
to appoint or prohibit uh, is is uh, the, the idea. So God does not create or institute or ordain the powers that be. He orders them. He tells them where they belong. What is their place? Um, so, you know, a librarian orders the books in the library. She doesn't necessarily agree with all the things that the books say. Um, we have there are several wrong interpretations of Romans thirteen one to seven. Let me do some wrong interpretations. Don't get confused here. I'm I'm telling you the wrong thing first, and then I'll tell you the right thing. I think a wrong interpretation is to say that God has brought all governments into existence through his providential action. That is, whatever government exists is of God and should be obeyed. The idea many get from this is that whatever government exists, it's you know the providential action. It's the ordaining action. And so the governments of ancient Rome, of Saddam Hussein, of... Uh, you know, Trump or Adolf Hitler or Mussolini or Khomeini or Emperor Hirohito. They must be there by the will of God and we Christians should therefore blindly obey whichever one we might happen to be living under. And this line of thought or this understanding remains alive in popular Christian piety and patriotism. Uh, And of course, these same governments... The government of Rome is the one that's ordered, ordained the death of Christ. Uh, and Paul and many Christians just saw the movie Silence about Japan. Uh, it's a picture of the government ordaining the mass slaughter of maybe tens of thousands of Christians in Japan. One of the largest slaughters in the history of the world. Did Paul believe, uh, you know, that pagan, the pagan Roman emperor Nero had a mandate from God to murder and persecute the church, Paul's brothers and sisters? Could he have meant that Christians should have driven the nails through Jesus' hands and feet if the state ordered them to do so? And this gets reprehensible. I mean, this is clearly not the case. Paul himself had many troubles with worldly rulers as seen through you know, the acts that he makes no hesitation to have the rulers come out and apologize if he's able. If he wanted Christians to always blindly obey the governing authorities, why did he escape from those authorities in Acts chapter 9 who are trying to kill him? So even thinking about Jesus, maybe the resurrection is the ultimate act of civil disobedience. The government wanted him dead. If Jesus obeyed the powers that be, he would have stayed in the grave. At the resurrection, the stone was rolled away, breaking the Roman seal, put there by the authority of Caesar. Jesus' resurrection was an act of civil disobedience. And thus... Uh, I think Christians would agree that Germans who obeyed Hitler and slaughtered the Jews or Serbian Christians uh, or those who participate in ethnic cleansing, just because they're ordered by their government to do so, that doesn't mean that we do that. We don't participate in evil. Uh, 
Clearly Christians are not called to blind, unquestioning obedience, but rather to a discernment. Let me give you another bad interpretation of Romans 3, uh, 13, 1 to 7. And that is, well, we, uh, we have proper governments and we have improper governments. And Christians should obey one and rebel against the other. Uh, so the idea here is that, well, God may not ordain a particular government. They may be the idea of government. Uh, that is, as long as a government meets a certain minimum set of requirements, providing health care, education, justice, religious and racial tolerance, defense and care for refugees and the poor, that the government may properly claim the sanction of divine uh, institution. And then if a government fails to fulfill the divine functions, you know, uh, like the Taliban or Saddam Hussein, or uh, then it becomes the duty of Christian citizens, we the people, to rise up and revolt. A violent revolt, maybe. Not because we are against government, but because we are in favor of proper government. For example, consider the American Revolution, which threw off the shackles of Great Britain. The French Revolution, which threw off the shackles of a corrupt monarchy. And one might think here of liberation theologies, you know, in South America, which justify uh, rebellion against a white cultural economic imperialism. Well, the problem, there's a lot of problems with this, and that, you know, how bad is too bad? Who is to judge how bad a government can be and yet still be good and not worthy of rebellion? You know, think of Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath regime. Uh, it was oppressive, a ty- tyrannical, uh, yet it did provide a system of government. Law and order and education and health care and sanitation and food distribution. All of which we've seen in his absence has been undone in that country. The Taliban, Taliban, while not a system of government, and I would never wish to live under this system, but one could argue that both the Taliban and the Ba'ath Party, while very far from liberal, nevertheless they provide a better system than the anarchy and problems that now reign in much of Iraq and Afghanistan. So, but what I think is being described in Romans 13 is the opposite of just rebellion. An even greater weakness of the view of just rebellion is that nothing in Romans 13 justifies it. In other words, if we're going to read Romans 13 and we're going to take it into account, I think what part of what it means is we don't do rebellion. We do not do violent revolution. The notion of proper government and the function of Christians rising up to rebel and overthrow a bad government is totally contrary to the passage. Remember that when Paul wrote to the Christian church in Rome, Rome was ruled by a corrupt pagan government which was then persecuting the church. If he was saying we should only accept good governments and rebel against the bad governments, it would be remarkable that Paul does not call the Jewish Christians in Rome to rebel or even emotionally reject this government. That's not what he's doing. He calls them to remember the tender mercies of God 
tenderly love their friends and their enemies, and to live in subjection to it. There is no room for violent revolution. God does not create or institute or ordain the powers that be. Yes, he only orders them. He tells them where they belong and what is their, their place. So if we reject that the text is calling to blind obedience to whatever government happens to exist, that is, you know, should we serve and kill on behalf of Hitler or Stalin or Hussein or Trump or whatever president might be in place, or whatever the state asks us to do, if we're going to reject that and reject the idea that Christians should rise up in violent revolution and overthrow the government, you know, as with the French, the American, the Russian revolutions, how do we make sense of this text? And I think the answer is, well, governments are ordered by God, but the church is the body of Christ, the true temple, the true kingdom, the true people. And so Paul is making a moral statement. He's not making a metaphysical one about governmental powers. He's speaking to the present situation of Roman Christians as representative of Christians throughout the empire and throughout history. He is not speaking to the nature of all political reality, nor is he prescribing some ideal social order. But rather, God did not make human government through some new creative intervention or redemption, that describes what he did with the church. God has intervened. He has redeemed us, and he's doing that through the church. So ever since the creation of the world, human beings, uh, and human beings, there's been a hierarchy and authority in human society. And ever since the fall, the exercise of power and authority has involved domination, disrespect, you know, racism, oppression, slavery, injustice, and potential violence. And this is simply the sad fact of the unredeemed, sinful human existence. But as Christians, that does not define us. So as Christians, uh, we should be in subjection to the, whole, uh, to the historical process in which, yes, the sword continues to be wielded and to bring about a kind of order under fire. But we should not perceive in the wielding of the sword our calling or our reconciling ministry. This is not how a Christian learns Christ. We are not in the business of bearing the sword. Romans 13, by the way, is not the only thing, the, the center of teaching about the state even, In the Bible, there's a very strong strand of gospel teaching which sees secular government as the province and sovereignty of Satan. Jesus shown all the kingdoms in the the world by Satan says, uh, these kingdoms, Satan said, have been handed over to me and I give them to whomever I wish. Jesus does not challenge Satan's claim there to be able to dispose of all the nations. Paul's own teaching in Corinthians, Satan is the god of this world. Ephesians 2.2, 2, he's the prince of the powers of the air. Uh, in 1 John, he says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Consider the teaching of the prophet Hosea, who condemns Israel and he says they have set up kings 
That is, these kings are not ordained by God. They have made princes, God says, and I knew it not. Compare Revelation 13 to Romans 13, where we see the blasphemous beast of a government, a clear picture of a world government given authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation, while clearly not being God's government. This government would ultimately, uh, certainly it's subject to the sovereignty of God, nevertheless it arrogantly blasphemes against heaven and makes war on the saints and overcomes them. It says there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That is this world ruler, this nation uh, stands over and against God himself. And we find similar references of evil governments in Daniel chapter 7 and 8. I think I mentioned on the day that our president was inaugurated, he called it the National Day of Patriotic Devotion. Christians are devoted to God. We're not devoted to any nation. And we have a word to describe the worship of that which is not God. We call that idolatry. Idolatry can be a quite impressive kind of a devotion. But usually, if we interfere with the worship of idolaters, somebody's going to get killed. It's a dangerous thing. And that's precisely why Paul is going to die in Rome. He questions the idolatry. That's why Christians are going to die. They would not bow their knee to Caesar. And I'm afraid that as Christians in this country, we sometimes confuse. We're worshiping foreign gods and don't know it. We're bowing the knee, giving devotion where it should not be given. So God orders the powers that be, but that doesn't mean he morally approves of them. In the picture, you know, if we think of Romans 7 as being a kind of universal case... It's, there is a picture that Paul will describe this antagonism between the self and the other as the body of death. And death is not simply what happens to someone, rather it's the orientation, activity enacted and taken up by the self. Uh, death is the antagonism and violence that we do to ourselves, but it also describes corporate, the corporate condition. There is an antagonism, a violence but is definitive of sin. War describes this violence and antagonism at a corporate level. Uh, in the modern period, we imagine that war is you know, the struggle between sovereign states. Uh, but maybe we have a misunderstanding as to how a state is constituted. You know, even the United States is something... When it was constituted as a kind of declaration of war against Great Britain. Uh, the picture is that nations rise and nations fall, but the reason they rise and fall, it's because of this 
antagonistic relationship to God and to other people that brings about a kind of universal violence. Even Aristotle's notion of peace is typical. It's just the cessation of war. It posits war and chaos as the original thing. Michael Foucault says war is politics by other means, but maybe we should say, well, politics is war by other means. The antagonisms within societies, class warfare, racial warfare, generates the political order that's constrained, you know, that's consigned to control to control these struggles. And so by the same token, war is constitutive of international political order. The law of sin and death describes not just a personal law, but the condition of corporate humanity and international law. We have been saved from the law of sin and death. We've been saved from antagonism. We've been saved from that violence. We've been saved from war. We've been saved from the struggles that define the nation states of this world. Immanuel Kant says, where reason is the foundation of a political or ethical order, war will be necessary. Yes, I think he's right. Reason of a particular kind. But the reason that we have in Christ, the foundation that we have in Christ, is of a very different nature. War pictures the sovereign, whether the sovereign state or its representative, as having a kind of transcendent value. The state is worthy of dying for because it transcends this value. And nations provide a kind of salvation, don't they? My death is not in vain because uh, it is on behalf of the state that will continue to live into a limitless future. So Romans 13, 1-7 should be read in the context of Paul's exhortation for his readers. Do not live in conformity to the world And they are to preserve love for all. And these verses cannot be teaching Christians anything other than that. It's consistent with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, The same ethic, this is what I talked about a little bit, that uh, the picture of the Sermon on the Mount uh, is is, uh, we're to not enter into violent relationships. Both the Sermon on the Mount and Paul call all disciples of Jesus to renounce participation in vengeance. It call, Both call Christians to respect and be subject to the historical process in which the sword continues to be wielded, bring about a kind of order in the world, but not to perceive in the wielding of the sword our ministry of reconciliation. Um, as Christians we're called to a very different allegiance Uh, Donald Trump said there's nothing the American people cannot accomplish as long as we believe in ourselves and our country I don't think as Christians that's our belief that is it's not that we believe in some sort of absolute sense in ourselves and our country we believe in God We do more than believe in God. We worship God. And nothing else is to be worshipped. And when the state calls us to an absolute allegiance, we can't follow. 
Because our absolute allegiance is given to God. So, Romans 13, 1-7, when read in light of Paul's overall theology, might best be understood as a kind of response to the question, how might followers of Jesus living in the heart of the beast truly witness to God's healing love? They do so by holding together their rejection of empire idolatry with their commitment to active pacifism. That is, we will not turn to violence, nor will we bow the knee to, to Caesar or the, whoever calls us to bow the knee. Our most radical task, and perhaps our most subversive, is to live visibly as communities where the enmity that had driven Paul himself to murderous violence, remember? The enmity between Jew and Gentile, they're joined together in one fellowship, is overcome. That enmity is a witness, is undone, and that's a witness to the genuine peace, genuine peace in a violent world. So as Christians, I believe we say no to empire. Uh, We say no to the idea that as Christians we partake in the principalities and powers of this world. You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, Jesus says, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Radical subordination. Revolutionary subordination. We say no to violent resistance. We must not let the empire set our agenda or determine our means of resistance. We must not, in seeking to overcome evil, become evil ourselves. Oh. Those who say, you know, it's not that we can't critique U.S. foreign policy. It's not that we can't critique these things. But as, you know, I think it's a part of the Christians to be salt and light. But we do not participate in in a violent kind of critique. We say yes to communities of resistance. I think that's what the church is. The church is always a community of resistance to the principalities and powers of the world. In the end, Paul's message may be a kind of apocalyptic message. It's an apocalyptic message like that of Revelation that centers on the revelation of God's healing strategy. What God brings forth in response to human brokenness and the oppression of the nations and their empires are communities of people like this who know God's peace and share that peace with all the families of the earth. Donald Trump says that the bedrock of our politics will be a total allegiance to the United States of America. And through our loyalty to our country, we will recover loyalty to each other. He's making a claim that's theological in nature. It's a kind of salvation that he's holding out. As Christians, we believe that we owe t- total allegiance to God. And we, I fray, I'm afraid, run the risk 
of making an idol out of some human enterprise. Christ, the prophets, Paul, they're all killed by the powers. Bear in mind that it is the powers that have killed and persecuted the prophets, Jesus Christ, and many of his followers. In Hebrews it says, Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. He's describing the history of persecution of God's people. Christians are called to a higher law and a different kingdom and a different culture. Believers are called never to pay back evil for evil to anyone. We're to bless those who persecute us. We're never to take revenge but to leave room for the wrath of God. Our love is to always be without hypocrisy. All evil is to be abhorred. And we are to cling to what is good, as Paul says in Romans 12. And Romans 13, 8-10 calls us back to the supreme law of love. Um, it does no harm or wrong to a neighbor. Uh, it, let me read here. That, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The law, the commands... Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever uh, other command there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, And Paul will continue in chapter 14. He calls believers to holiness, to purity, to submission to one another. Uh, in 14 and 15 he's going to say to the weaker brother you know you're to have strong uh, 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 concern the stronger brothers to have concern for the weaker brother and we're together finances and spiritual resources where the community of believers can support one another and demonstrate love towards one another so we need to keep government function and Christian function separate those are two different things If you look at chapter 12, verse 19, the believer is told, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. And then 13.4, about not bearing the sword in vain in regard to the state. And the state being a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Reading the two passages together, we can conclude one thing very clearly that the function exercised by government is not the function to be exercised by Christians. God is sovereign and he can and does work through corrupt power structures in a sinful and fallen world to use the wrathful violence of authorities to punish evil with evil. It's 
demonstrated in places like Isaiah 10, where an idolatrous and wicked Assyria is used to punish an even more idolatrous and wicked nation. But be assured that Assyria and Babylon and Habakkuk received their own comeuppance in God's time. No nation other than the church fulfills God's eternal or enduring purposes. That's what Paul has just described in chapters 9 to 11. A believer may argue that Britain or America or Rome have been used in the permissive providence of God you know, to punish other nations. Maybe Saddam Hussein's regime was after all based on lies. And those who refused to participate in the lie were choosing imprisonment, torture, or death. However, Iraq's evil does not mean God morally approves of the evil of Britain or the United States to defeat it. He very clearly does not. And it's very plain that all of these nations in God's due time will in their own turn be judged for their actions. So Christians have a higher allegiance. The fact that God orders and uses the power does not tell us how Christians should respond to government. It does not mean that God has mandated or saved or redeemed or made a particular government his chosen instrument. Instead, all governments are lined up or used by God in his sovereign ordering of the cosmos. God as sovereign may use America or Britain or the powers that be to execute his purposes, but that does not mean that he approves of everything that they do. And although believers are called to recognize the sovereignty and ordering of God in government and the realm of human affairs, it certainly does not mean that Christians are in any way to acquiesce to evil. Subordination, as I said last week, is very different than obedience. Submission is not obedience. On the contrary, Christians are called as much as is possible within them to live in peace with all people, to owe nothing to anyone but to love them. Christians should display a non-resistant attitude towards even a tyrannical government. In a strange way, revolutionary subordination is the Christian form of revolution. The instructions to the Christians in Rome are to be subject, you're to be subject to a government in whose administration they had no voice. So the, the text cannot mean that Christians are called to partake in this service. At the time Paul is writing, uh, most Christians would have been slaves or Jews, and thus not even eligible to bear the sword. And the church has a solid history of pacifism up until the 4th century AD. And that's when Emperor Constantine was converted and Christianity became the official state religion. Until then, the church was persecuted and held little power. It would not have concerned itself with the functions of war, policing, or government. And so at minimum, this text does not address Christians bearing arms. On its own, this does not prove that Christians should never submit to conscription or to military service. However, it does prove that at this point in time and in this political context, this was not an issue that was being addressed. We're to pay taxes, to render all that is due to them to Rome, and not in this context to be understood 
as called to, to serve these, you know, powers. So we sub, uh, sub, uh, accept our subjection to government as our, uh, and, and we remain, retain our moral independence in judgment. The authority of government is not self-justifying. Whatever government exists is ordered by God, but they are still made up of sinful men and women, and therefore we cannot say that whatever a government does or asks of its citizens will always be good or should always be obeyed. Um, So even the term ministers of God are to busy themselves, they devote themselves to their assigned function. And what is that? Collecting taxes, rewarding good, punishing evil. They are ministers of God by virtue of the fact that they do devote themselves to doing good and righteous things. And so render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes do. So the conclusion is that we're to submit like Christ. Christians should never blindly obey government or acquiesce to evil. For the Christian, subordination is a revolutionary act. It's a way we can share in God's patience with a worldly system that we basically reject. Ultimately, the believer accepts subordination because he or she is following the example of Jesus. Christ himself accepted subordination and humiliation. That's the picture in Philippians 2.5. So the believer has a strong reason to do so. And this then gives the, the willingness to suffer is given a greater meaning and purpose. It's not merely a test of our patience or a dead space of waiting. It is itself participation in the character of God's victorious patience toward the rebellious powers. As we suffer, as Christ suffered, we're participating then in the reconciling work of God. We subject ourselves to government because it was in so doing that Jesus our Lord revealed and achieved God's victory. Therein we participate in the faith and perseverance of the saints. Let's sing our hymn.